For me, as far back as I can remember, doubt and faith have always come as a pair. Twin companions, in a way, joined at the hip. That always made me feel uneasy. I think I must have been told sometime, somewhere, that the goal of faith was to get rid of doubt. I could never convince myself that I had believed enough. But what if doubt and faith are not adversarial? What if it is doubt that sometimes carries us to our faith? And what if our doubts are, at least in part, a misunderstanding of our faith? We've made the mistake of conceptualizing faith as a kind of quantifiable substance where it plays in a transactional quid pro quo with God. Doubt and faith, doubt as faith. Today on Don't Hold Me to This. I would love to talk about I would love to talk about doubt and the role that it plays in the life of our faith, but also the the specter it presents within the life of the community, like the threat that I think some of us perceive when someone expresses a doubt, some doubt related to their faith, or we feel some rising doubt. And then I also want to explore together, like, what are all the catalysts for doubt? Like, as you've experienced it in your own life, I can imagine a number of things that have led, that have, like, issued in something that I would describe as doubt. For me, it has been institutional wounding. So I've experienced some legitimate and significant pain in my life, some hardship related to some action on the part of the church that I was employed with. And uh, when that occurred, it, it, one of the outcomes was some level of doubt. Um, but also like doubt has arisen from what we might call my devotional life. Like as I ask God for some relief from some negative situation, or I, I tell God some hopes and dreams that I have and ask him to bring those about. And when the answer to those things is silence or is, is I, I perceive the answer is a no, it issues in some doubt. And I think some people have doubts that we might categorize as like, kind of reasonable responses to the kind of fantastical claims that that our faith makes. Like, this man came back from the dead. Oh, well, that's rare, right? That's that's unusual. Also being born, born from a woman who was a virgin. Yeah, that's I've never heard of that before. That's a that's an unusual event that it's reasonable to go. Really? I mean, really? Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, there's something something out of the out of the uh, area of expectation there for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, and I think it seems like there's a couple of things that just 
maybe I should have dealt with this before we started talking, but one, I just, I wonder what we, you know, how we even would want to define doubt because I feel like there's a, certainly a, a whole this, uh, spectrum of possible ways to, to see something as doubt or maybe see it as not doubt. And then, and then the other thing is I, in terms of where it comes from, I, I think what you've described are, those make sense to me. And I, for me, it's uh doubt that comes from, um, I think sometimes it's my own inability to, to sort of work the program that was given. So, so in, in some ways, I think the doubt, you talked about institutional hurt. I think a part of that doubt comes from the institutional expectation of faith. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so if you're, if you're, if you've set up a standard and an institutional expectation of faith, that's always a dangled carrot, then what do you do when you never get the carrot? Right. It's, I don't know what else to do, but, but to then uh, wonder and, and um, question and uh, see that as, as a doubt that, that begins to form in my uh, in this whole the whole program and whether I'm I'm either poorly equipped or just faithless or whatever it is to ever even attain the the standard. Can you can you get Shannon? Can you give me an example of that like that carrot that dangling of the carrot? Like what are the ways in which um, institutions have done that? How would we how would we see it identify it you know what's going on there yeah well i mean i think setting up uh the the moral expectation that um like for your instance for instance in your illustration that you um you in your devotional life when you've pled with god for some maybe some relief from whatever it is a grief mm-hmm. Mm-hmm you know, a, a besetting sin, what, whatever those things are that we, we call out to God and ask for um, healing from, and that doesn't come it, there. There's a, I, I didn't grow up in a t- tradition that taught this explicitly, but it was still implicit. It, it was implied that um, when those, when the answer was no, the answer was no because of something lacking um, in me. Um, in my asking or in my believing, yeah. Um, yeah, and that seemed to always leave the carrot out of reach, right? And, and some of this has to do with my own, you know, enneagram fourness, which is angsty and and internally self-aware. And so I always knew that there were these nagging things that I could that I I, I could never convince myself that I had believed enough. I, I could always see the flaws in my own efforts or whatever it was. And so, but the system set it up where the way you got the good thing from God is you, you, you know, you perfectly believed or you perfectly confessed where you didn't believe. And, and I would sit in that and go, well, I, I can't do that. Um, and that, that um, raised the kinds of doubts of, uh, uh, and, 
in my faith. Does that help? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And so then I think the other thing that for me is just uh, that, that raised out. And I think this is also interesting as I think about this uh, conversation, because I, my doubt, when I think about my own doubts, they tend to revolve around doubt of self. Yeah, they, totally. they tend to be leveraged back onto something I've failed at rather than primarily doubt uh, that God is good, mm-hmm. right? For instance. Yeah. Or that, that he, I have doubted whether that to me, I've, I, but I, I would never say it that way. I would only ever say it as, as I've only ever really felt like God tolerated me. <laughs> right. Which is not very loving, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and so the, the honest truth is I've, I've, I've doubted God's love. And again, that's a, I think that's constructed in my mind, not because of something about God, but because of the way the church has uh, conveyed the, the quid pro quo between me and God in terms of earning and gaining his love. Right. Uh, that the relationship so- with God, the relationship with God that is sort of like, um, mediated by this rhythm of prayer where we're expressing our pains and we're asking for relief or we're asking for some help, that it's, that it's centrally transactional. And that if, if it is transactional, then most of the time it's failed. Most of the time it's infelicitous, right? Most of the time it's, it's breaking down, right? If, if I went to a grocery store, that Eight times out of 10, I gave money for the groceries, but I didn't walk out with the groceries. I'd not go there anymore, right? Yeah. Like I need that to be transactional. And when we take that, that kind of format and lay it over the relationship with God, you can see that it's sort of a recipe for generating all sorts of doubt when our, our prayers bounce off the ceiling or uh, don't come back to us with some positive movement. Yeah. So I, I think that for me, those are the places that I think about uh, in my, my own wrestling. Now I've, you know, I've had conversations with, uh, with folks who, uh, you know, who have, I think the more, what we might think is the traditional or straightforward ways of thinking about doubt which is the the resurrection is it's it is a fanciful thing yeah and i think it makes rational sense to to kind of go you know is that is this real is that is that is that true yeah Um, and so people who who find themselves in that place that makes sense to me uh, you know, it's, I, I it's, think- it's, it's interesting that um, I, I just, if I can interject really quickly, sorry to interrupt you. I don't know how to exactly how to formulate this. So don't hold me to this. I believe in the resurrection because I think it's true. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus was actually killed and I think he was actually raised from the dead for the life of the world. But I, and I also believe in it because that's the kind of world I want. Mm-hmm. It meets the 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 resurrection and what the story 
suggests that it will do, meets all of the things that I want about the world. Like when I look at police brutality or I look at mistreatment of certain groups of people, when I look at injustices of capitalism around the world as children are forced to work in sweatshops, when I look at Canadian truckers silenced for their protests of what they perceived as overreach, when I look at children who die in infancy for malnutrition or neglect, when I look at broken relationships, both individual, personal, and systemic and institutional. What I want to happen in all those places, the, the right that I want to see made out of all those wrongs, the, the turning of all of those upside down things right side up, the resurrection promises to do. And in some ways, in what one author called an advanced echo, does, does it, those things already in small ways, not in in totality, but in proximate ways, it does and promises to turn the world right side up. And I long to have the world turned right side up. So I believe in the resurrection because I think it's true. And I believe in the resurrection because it promises to make the world the sort of world that I think all of us want. And maybe in some ways, some of us doubt because we didn't know that there's different motivations for believing you know what i mean yeah that's what and i think that's where i think yeah i think that maps to it's you know it's a different angle on, on something that i was that I'm, I'm teasing around in my head which is i think a lot of this this wrestling with doubt may not be doubt of jesus right right it may be doubt of uh, the accretions of the church is they've sort of ossified and become in some ways untethered from the person of Jesus and the story of Jesus. I think that's a, that's a huge, I think there, there's a lot to be discussed there. Um, but I don't want to simply, I don't want to also, I, I want us also to hold, hold in the conversation, those people who, who they their doubt is you know in, in the writing um you know the the references to the story of of Jesus healing healing a man's son and at, Jesus asking if uh he believes in the father answers i i i believe help my unbelief mm-hmm. And I, I wonder what's in that space between what he what he means by I believe and help my unbelief. I can imagine that he might be saying, I believe, but not enough. Like, I'm not going to go to the bookie right now and put every cent down I have on the fact that because I've asked you and you've now engaged, that my son is going to get up and walk. And I think a lot of times in our struggle with doubt is... And this again, this goes this this is where maybe these things collide in terms of kind of the pristine. This is my interior struggle with doubt and the institutional 
um, structural thing, which is part of the reason I pray and have the devotional life you speak of is because I believe God is able. And so then the doubt seeps in into the into that space of well, into the confusing space of well, why why not? Right. Why not here? Why not now? Why not me? Yep. Um, and so I can imagine that that father, maybe his belief is, I believe you can do this. I just, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't know how to believe you'll do it for me. Right. I, I believe that you can. I just don't know if you will. Right. Yeah. So, or it may be, I've heard that you can and, I want to believe, but I struggle to believe. I think right. that's a maybe a fair. You know, I want this to be true, but I struggle to believe that it it's it's even possibly true. That I think yeah. that's a fair reading. Of what might be going on for that father, or it might be something like, um, yeah, I mean, of course I believe because what the hell else am I going to do? Like, what <laughs> other option do I have? Right? right. It's right. like I'm at the end of my rope. My son is dead. Like, I don't you're you're laying out an equation and what i'm telling you is i'll do whatever i'll do whatever it takes my son is dead so i'm i'm i will do anything <laughs> whatever tell me what you want me to say i will say it yeah so i like i'm now i'm doing a thought experiment and putting this question to the woman with the hemorrhage right yeah. because she we know she was desperate because she had tried everything yeah and, and what we see in her faith is that she's, it's, it is that kind of, I've tried everything else. Yep. If I can just, if I can just touch the hem of this miracle worker's garment, then maybe I'll get some of that, that magic. Yep. Healing to my, my own body. Yeah. And, you know, is that, is that in the institutional part of the question, is that faith? Is that, is that right. the model of faith? Right. Um, is there right. no is there no doubt in what she's doing? Is there no confusion? And so I think often we we set these in juxtapositions. This is one of the first well, first thoughts that came to my mind. I think by the very nature of inviting faith, it feels like you're inviting faith in always into the space of some kind of some kind of doubt. Of course, you're, the only way that that's the only way that that's not possible is if I equate faith and certainty. Doubt is only a threat to faith if faith and certainty are synonyms. Yeah. Which I think, that, and that's the, I think that's the failure of the, uh, of the institutional soup I grew up in. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't want to speak for, for everybody. And I think there are places I'm sure that do this well and, and hold these things uh, well. But, yeah. Yeah, so faith faith um, was a was a kind of certainty, and that's where the transactional part of it was. Is you didn't get what you were asking for because your faith, you know, the 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 cashier looked at your bill and it's counterfeit, right? right. That's right. <laughs> um, it's been torn in half, and you taped it back together. And she's like, "I'm sorry, I can't accept this. Can't right? This that. is not legal currency." And you're like, "Well, crap. What do I do now? Because this is all so I got. like. So um, I got right." Yeah, this is this is it. Um and um and so I think that that kind of uh equating faith and certainty is is a um 
that that describes the religious Christian world that I have inhabited for most of my life. I want to explore Go that ahead. for a second. In what way is the institution being served to have made the move of equating faith and certainty? Yeah, my 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 gut first reaction. This may be. Um, I, I hesitate because this may be. Um, this may be the low hanging fruit of it. I, I don't know. This this may not be. There may need to be some real um, till um, uh, spade work to get down underneath this. But I think a lot of a lot of the institution. And I'll say this even as a minister, even about the way I operated as a pastor, mm-hmm. is there's a lot of natural desire to manage and control outcomes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if you're gonna if you're gonna do this thing, then we've you've got it, it there's an instinctive impulse within at least me as a human, I think um uh, humans that if we're going to do ministry, quote unquote, then we've got to know what it means when we've moved, when we're doing ministry and moved from point A to point B with somebody. Mm-hmm. And so the, I think uh, it serves the church uh, by giving it, it doesn't serve it well, but it serves that impulse by giving it a sense of I can control outcomes. Yeah. If I define if I define it this way, um, and in like in this is why for me personally, uh, you know, health and wealth kinds of churches, um, name it and claim it kinds of churches never would appeal to me because I I never had that kind of certainty. And I also reject the notion that the reason somebody's left in whatever the state is that they want out of, it's it's on them for not having the faith that they that God requires for them to get the healing that they want. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I I I, I fundamentally reject that. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. as a as a yeah. as a uh, as the way God works, even though <laughs> it, it's barbs are in my heart in subtler ways. Sure. Um, but, but I think if you do that, then you, 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 it's easy to say, here's how you get what you want. And here's why you didn't get it. And um, it's sort of like an, it's like a non falsifiable hypothesis, right? <laughs> like there's right. just no way to test it. Like, like if, if you ask for, $10 million and you don't get it. It's because you didn't ask the right way. Like it's just not falsifiable. Right. Um, there's just no possible way to test that there. It's, it's, it's like immune from any kind of scrutiny. Right. Um, and it seems like a faith that says, no, a man really was raised from the dead. Like that is a faith that is not immune from scrutiny. Like you can poke into it. Like this is the whole story of Thomas. Like I want to, I want to, I'm going to exercise scrutiny so much so that until I put my fingers in the hole in his side, I'm not going to believe. Yeah, I think in so in the circles that I inhabit, we we have a, a subtler form of non falsifiable, which is 
um, or I think this, here, here's my don't hold me to this. <laughs> I, I think I'm non-falsifiable is the answer is no um, in this situation because God is, God is working something in that no for your good. Right. Right. And you're like, that's fine when it's, I'm asking for the $10 million. I can be like, okay, maybe, right. Maybe I, I blow that all on, you know, cigarettes or something. Yeah. I don't know. Japanese salvage. But, <laughs> right. But, but when, but when you're, but when you're, um, when you're wasting away with a disease yeah. and it's terminal. Yeah. And then, yeah. then you, you look at it. And I think this is where the honest, the, it, and maybe I, I just kind of gave away where I'd love to talk about um, doubt as a as a positive because I think at minimum, it, it and honesty honesty before God requires us at least to acknowledge where we doubt, right? Yeah. And so I think so. I think in the situation of wasting away from a disease, I don't know how to honestly. Um do anything in that space but to cry out to god and and say why god I, it, what just occurred to me as you're saying is is um the, our our problem is that we have located doubt and faith as opposed to each other right what i think is maybe more accurate than saying doubt and faith are are opposites is that Doubt and stoicism are opposites. That the alternative to doubt in a situation where you're terminally ill is, is to say, well, this is my lot in life. This is the way it is. And I'm just going to deal with it. I'm just going to live with it. If a faith this that. Is for my, this is my good, right? You kind of. You, a totally stoic response. Yeah, a, a faith that a faith whose most mature expression is stoicism does not have a place for lament. There is no way in which a lament psalm finds its way into that kind of faith. Lament psalm grows out of the soil of doubt. It says, this is the way, God, you've said the world is supposed to be in the way you've made it. This is the way the world is now, even if it's our own doing. Those things are incongruent. Now what? Where are you? And what are you going to do? And why haven't you done it yet? And I think that's doubt. That's what I mean when I say doubt. And that's the, l- lament comes out of an honest contact with the real presence of doubt in our own, in our own minds and our own chests. And in and in turn, lament is, I think, the very essence of faith. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So again, I think you're. That's right. We've set them as a kind of. And I was, I you know, I think part of the reasons, part of the reason that we do this is because you know James says that you know if you ask in faith and without without doubting, yeah, we. Um, and I'm not, I'm not dismissing what, what, what James is, is teaching. Although there is a tradition um, of dismissing what James is teaching within, within the flow of 
Christianity. So I guess that's an op. <laughs> I'm in good company if I do, right? So like um, I think Luther. At least I think, in company. That's right. Yeah, you're in a you're in a company uh, that rightly have, rightly have, still calls itself Christian. So I have friends. Um, yeah. Right. No. So I think. Um, but I think that this this goes to this is a broader conversation or or maybe a different conversation, but. Um, we this again i think it's back to the the uh, the the need our need to sort of make make the faith and our lives in faith transactional quantifiable mm-hmm. measurable and so we we take we take a verse like if you ask in faith without doubting and then we we beat everything else with that with that hammers um without also taking that verse I haven't, I haven't, it's been a long time since I've exegeted that passage. One, I don't think it, I don't think it means what it, um, what it seems to say on its face that we're, that we're dealing with here. But even so it's written in in a particular context and it's written in the context of the whole of scriptures where we see that, well, the story that we mentioned with, you know, the man who says, I believe and I am, and I don't believe, right? right. That I'm, I'm coming to you um, at the very same time, and I don't think that person is, is what that whatever James means by being double-minded. He that man is not has to actually not fit that definition because right. Jesus responds to his faith. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I think we, we do this. You know, one of my other ones is. Is you know, be anxious for nothing, right? And we, you, we, we think that English translation of anxiety means everything that we could possibly mean by anxiety in our own world, right? right. Yeah, right. And and Christians then don't know what to do when they're suffering with a, a physiological kind of anxiety. They only know how to read it through faith and doubt, because that the the Bible has become that kind of manual for the the quantifiable controllable religion rather than a story of pilgrims who are sometimes merely inching in the yeah. what 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 they hope is the right direction yep um, yeah and to me that's is faith but that gets lost in that that kind of reading of the the scriptures. I I think that that um, that how the the way you describe doubt I I think is one of the ways I would use it. Mm. Um, but I also think it's I I think it's also you know maybe the the other side of that is we we need to acknowledge that we define. You said faith is certainty. I think there's also a kind of pristination of faith mm-hmm. in that definition. I've I've, I've I've at times talked about it. We we tend to talk about it in terms of quantity or quality, right? Right. It's either right. it's either the quality, the, the diamond under the jeweler's glass that that God is looking at, mm-hmm. or he's or the or he's pulled out his scales. Um, and once there's enough of it to tip the scale and that then levers, whatever it is that we're trying to get from God. And I don't think that's faith either. Right. Um, 
I've been at places in my life where, where I actually the places where I think my faith was the most poignant were the were the places where I would define faith as whatever went into getting out of bed that day. Right. Right. And I don't think the church, the church that I've, again, I've experienced has, has never honored that as a emulatable kind of faith. Right. Um, And yet it was when I felt like faith was the, like I said, the most poignant ever in my life. Mm -hmm. When what faith was, I got up and faced the day. I think our definitions and and, and this, the culture that we inhabit some has somehow uh, shaped our, our our definitions of these things in ways that are not healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hey friends, thanks for listening to this episode on Doubt and Faith. If you're enjoying Don't Hold Me to This, consider liking and subscribing on YouTube or Spotify and subscribing to our written pieces at don'tholdmetothis.substack.com. It will all really help us out. Okay, back to the show. I think so much of our the way we move through our lives is a result of the way that we conceptualize things that we think of as important, right? So we've we've made the mistake of conceptualizing faith as a kind of quantifiable substance where it plays in a transactional quid pro quo with God. And if we're suggesting that that's not a healthy or helpful way to conceptualize faith, then what's another way? Like what do we replace that concept with? Uh, that makes me think back to our first podcast conversation on improvisation. So it seems like to me. So what I want to what I want to say now about wanted how I'd want to define faith is it's entering the story and playing your part, gesturing mm-hmm. in gesturing in the, the the direction that you that you. Is, is sort of your best effort at playing your part in, in the story of God's love for the world. And um, without a script, not, not having the best. Script. Script. Yeah. And that's why, like, I think the story of the, 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 the father and son is, is he's, this is all new, right? He's yeah. like, Jesus, will you do this? And Jesus is like, well, do you believe? And he's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes and no. <laughs> yeah, um, I do and I don't. I do help me. I, I, I um, he's, he's, he's. You know, I can just imagine. I don't know, but you know, he's, he's heard of, he's heard of, he's desperate. Mm-hmm. Heard of this man Jesus. Um. So now he's 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 heard this story of 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 Jesus. And he's, he's, he and his story are, he's bringing his story into an encounter with the story of Jesus. And in in so doing, something is put before him that he's never had to consider. Mm -hmm. And so what he does is he plays his part. Mm -hmm. He says, yes, I believe, and and help my unbelief. Yeah. 
And at that point, I don't think Jesus, I don't think Jesus pulls out the scales nor the jeweler's glass. He he gestures back in a, in a fitting way to the man in his story. And, and I wonder if to bring that back into contact with, with what James says, um, what the, what the man who's desperate for someone to help him, what he does is he says everything that's on the inside. If you believe I will heal your son, do you believe? Well, I do and I don't. Like, here's everything inside. I do and I don't. And what the person in James is doing is saying, yes, I only believe. When on the inside it's going, yeah, I don't know if I do or I don't. You know what I mean? Yes, that's so the, that's, that's your description of double-mindedness. That's right. You say one thing. His double-mindedness double is, is, is a kind of fakery. It's a, it's a um, hiding. Yeah, that's right. It's a hiding. And what the man desperate for his son to be healed is the last thing he's doing is hiding. Yeah, I think that's I think that's excellent and I I think um I think if that's true, mm -hmm. then I think what the the church has done in its in its either explicitly or implicitly in discussing these things is is actually forced people into double-mindedness. Yeah, into hiding. Yeah. And that's why I said honesty. I was like, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever, whatever <laughs> faith without doubting means, I am confident that what God is not asking of us um, is to is to try to fake him out. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, right. I believe God. That's right. <laughs> I, I remember, you know, I, I don't think he's asking us to lie about our doubts. Right. That, right. that can't that's that's on its face can't be true. Yeah. And yeah. so so I do think that that what you've described is is again, I think it it's that is that, that's where faith and doubt become, I think, um presented as they are with in the the the, the you know the story we're talking about are um in that regard they're both they're, they're each is an expression of faith yes um each is a, each is an um an expression of i'm going to posture myself in a way that in some ways just accepts jesus for who he is and the question he's asked me and so i'm going to say yeah i believe and i don't believe right um, um and i think that's really i think it's interesting to think about the the how we and in, in ministry and we and in the church of actually in trying to sort of pristinate the idea of faith and doubt in James one have unwittingly set people up for the kind of double mindedness that James warns against. Yeah. We've, we've made it so that the only alternative to continue their life within the institution is to engage in that kind of hiding because what we, what we have, what we have effectively done is not eradicate doubt what we've done is eradicate the space for doubt we've we've right. said doubt has to be hidden and private and shameful because it disqualifies you from being a part of this community when when what disqualifies you is not saying 
here's the things that I struggle to believe. Here's the doubt that I live with every day. Yeah. So I just wonder if you've ever, you know, I've been in spaces where the the stated posture is, this is a place for people with questions and doubters. But I, I just wonder if you've ever seen a space where that was really welcomed and safe for somebody to to be to be honest about their their doubts. Because mm. I wonder what that I wonder what that looks like. Because I can't, I, you know, I, I've been in places where it exists on, to a degree, but still. Um, not in the way that I think we articulate it. And I, one, it makes me wonder why can't the church be a place for that? Why can't we do that? And two, if there are places you've seen where it's done, I'd be interested to know how that, that culture was fostered so that people who are really struggling in those ways were considered, you know, still partners in the journey of, of faith. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. Um, I mean, th- what comes to mind immediately is I've experienced that sort of thing in the uh, therapy office or the counseling office. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can bring that into contact with what's going on in the sanctuary, for example, the worship hall at the in the church building, in the therapy office, like the energy is genuinely in the direction of the good of the client. And that's the goal. How do we help the client move toward wholeness and flourishing and a life of of felicity? The aim is and the goal really is wrapped up in the in the individual who's sitting there on the couch. And in the institution what you have is a kind of competition uh, between the flourishing life of the person sitting in the pew and the longevity of the trappings of the institution, including but not limited to our ability to pay our mortgage and our electric bill and our staff, right? Sure. And so you've got these, you've got these competing these competing ends that generate a level of fear in the people responsible for guiding and facilitating the life of the institution. I think what it would take for an institution to move in the direction of making space for real authentic expressions of faith that ring like doubt is a kind of genuine renewal of of a commitment to that person's flourishing and to a life of of felicity in the kind of faith that they can exercise. I've seen it happen in um, like relational settings over the dinner table where the goal of the evening is not to achieve a kind of unanimity around the table in terms of the articulation of the points of our faith, but really a genuine coming into contact with each other and who we actually are. And I, I think that's another thing that the, uh, the larger institution would have to renew a commitment to. We don't want, I don't want to come into contact with you as you faked yourself. I want to come into contact with who you actually are. I don't want to come into contact with some facsimile of you that has no hard edges or shadows. 
because th- that's not who any of us are. Let's come into contact with who we actually are, which requires making of space for honesty about who we actually are, the, the faithful and beautiful things and the things that are still growing and have a shadow cast over them. I recognize those things present a threat to church as institution whose goal it is to generate conformity and unanimity. I just don't think that's the goal of the church, of any church. And I don't think it ever was. And I, and I think we've, we've become that because in some ways we've constructed our ministerial role as responsible for making sure everyone believes. And the only way I can do that, because I don't have access to the interior life of your heart, I can't see that. And the story of the Bible is very clear that I can't see that and no one can. And so the only way I can access that is to get you to say the things in the way that I say the things or say the things in the way that we have always said the things. And, and that, I think that's where we make the stumble into faith as certainty. So it brings up another thing, which I think is uh, maybe a part of this, uh, which is I think the way we've, uh, we, when we talk about faith in this context, we, we're talk, we've, the whole, this, our whole conversation has been about faith in, in an individualistic kind of way. Faith as an individual and faith mm. as an interior Kind of psychological yep. um, thing. Yeah. Um, so that's where certainty comes in because if it's an interior psychological thing, then it's, it seems like it's, it would make sense that it's juxtaposition would be um, certain, you know, certainty and uncertainty, right? Faith and doubt are, are synonymous with certainty and uncertainty. Right. But one of the things that I think is, is extremely, has ex- been extremely helpful for me in terms of my own faith is to understand that that faith is um, in the context of the story of of God is it's a corporate reality as well, right? Or it's a shared reality, or it's a relational reality. So that in, in some ways, what what invite if we think about um, the story of God in corporate senses, which it certainly needs to be, is. Um, we we understand that in the context of any one particular individual's doubt or faith, it's it's the commun- it's it's within the community that we are being carried forward and moving forward. As as a minister, I've said you you may be in a place of really deep doubt, and that's okay. Your role in this moment may just be to let us believe for you. Right, come along. That's right. Bring your doubts along. Bring bring your doubts along with us, right? As we believe, as we believe together. Yep. Uh, this this creed, you know, the Apostles' Creed, or as we believe together that Jesus is is present with us and for us at this table. Yeah. Um, and 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 so some of uh, some of where the the church is maybe lost good strong uh sense of this and and how doubt might doubt might be included in this in this this story of faith is is to simply think about faith and doubt as individualistic and transact and then therefore also transactional between right. 
me as an individual self and God um, as as he is um, yeah. rather than uh, no we are in a company of believers yeah so faith as participation in the life and rhythms of a community who are to the best of their abilities inhabiting the story of God yeah, there's this there's this wonderful story. We've talked about this before. As Israel has been rescued from slavery in Egypt, and they're right on the right on the border of the Promised Land, and so it's Moses talking to now the second generation after having left Egypt. So the people that he's talking to, none of them ever lived in Egypt. And God says to Moses to say to that generation, people who've never been to Egypt and they were never slaves in Egypt, when you come into the promised land and you ask the question, what are the meanings of these laws and statutes? You are to tell the people and tell the people to tell their children, we were slaves in Egypt. So on the one hand, a a kind of cursory, straightforward, on the surface reading of that text. Sounds like there's some people that are curious about why they're supposed to obey some rules and the, their parents are supposed to tell them, you obey the rules because we were rescued from slavery in Egypt. But attending to the groups that are involved and to the grammar that's being used, people who are never slaves in Egypt are supposed to say to people who are now two generations removed from having been slaves in Egypt. So they've never even seen Egypt. They didn't even walk through the desert. These are now children born after Israel goes into the promised land. When they ask what are the meanings of these laws and statutes, what their parents are supposed to say is, we all of us were slaves in Egypt and were rescued. We are supposed to count ourselves as having been enslaved and having been rescued whether we ever personally individually experienced it or not faith as participation in the life and rhythms of a of a god-oriented community a community that has come from god made by him in their rescuing they're having been rescued from from egypt way back in the past and a community that's on their way toward life with god even as they live life with him right now and and they're supposed to call themselves we. Yeah, and I think that there's a one one of the one of the just huge benefits of seeing that as the as a as a biblical understanding of faith for for me personally is it it takes away the kind of navel gazing self doubting part of how I do the transactional faith. And I want to say this idealistically because it, I think the ideal is beautiful. Mm. I think that the I think the way we live it out is really messy and broken, but the ideal is we're in this together, right? I mean, it's part of what I why I love the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter is that this is it's never about uh, one particular individual. It's about they're taking up this story together, and there's this place in the movies of Harry Potter where. Her, where Hermione, this isn't in the book, but she's, you know, Harry's about to go face his, face Voldemort, and Hermione says, I'll, I'll go with you, mm. right? Um, and the, the, 
the beautiful the beauty of the idea that this is something that we inhabit together and i think the beauty of the idea that when somebody is in doubt that they can they can actually believe that it's okay like we can say we got this we we got you yeah. right we we we're going to step up boldly when you can't yeah and i'm going to you know there are days when i i will sing the songs you know to the to the to the back row and there are other days where i can't emotionally feel i I don't feel like i can do it with integrity i feel like i i don't believe this right now yeah but i can i can actually i do i and i do i take i take rest in the recognition that when i don't have it individually i have solidarity with these people who are the who are, who are the redeemed of God. Yeah. Um, and so then again, I think that goes, you know, we've back to our question of, you know, doubt and faith and some, some of where it may come from is that we, we think about it, we, we psychologize and individualize it in ways that um, are at, at minimum, they're truncated. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's gotta be individual. I think there's, sure. you know, it's, there's, there's certainly a, a part of this that's interior to any one particular and every one particular individual, but it's just like the the rest of the story of the Bible. It's never only that. Um, right. So maybe the title of the piece that was the catalyst for this conversation was a question, what do you do with doubt? And I'd love to hear you reflect m- maybe on a version of that question. I have a sense of what I can and ought to do with my own doubt. But a lot of our conversation has been about the place of doubt within a, an institutional setting or at least a community setting. So maybe a way to another way to come at that question is what do we do with each other's doubt? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great question. I've often said that you know one of the experiences I've had sort of in small group where these things tend to percolate to mm-hmm. the surface in honesty is those moments where somebody actually begins to be honest and pour out whatever those things are. Sometimes it's doubt, sometimes it's whatever. Uh, yeah. but things that the church, that people in the church, I'll, I'll say it as generously as possible, possible, that people in the church often feel like they can't really say out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've watched it happen where the group or certain folks in the group, at least, it's like the person just caught fire, right? <laughs> we're, you know, we're just starting. We just start doing whatever we can to put them out. Yep. Right. Um, and, and so I, I think I think the first step is to deal with whatever what whatever that that analogy of them catching fire and us doing whatever it is to put them out. That's on the hearer. That's not on the speaker. Yeah. Not on the one who's expressed what's going on inside of them. That's on the people who are in the room with them. And so I I think first is tending to our um, our own selves and in ways that we can then sit with people in their struggles and in their doubts. And even if it raises our own anxieties, we we can at least acknowledge that and manage it for the sake of that person in the room. Yeah. And their well-being. But it goes back to your picture of the therapist, right? One of the reasons the therapists 
room is so uh, relationship can be so life-giving is they're trained to manage their own their own anxieties in that space and allow you to be as fully you as you're willing to be in that moment right without, without reaction um and then also i think there's an assumption in the, the in the, that relationship that what it takes for your healing is merely guidance for you to merely them to guide you in what is already at work inside of you right um it's and so i think that learning to tend learning to allow people to actually be where they are rather than demanding that they be where they're not or where they should be or yeah, uncomfortable that they're not where they sh you think they should be. Yeah, I was going to say that the 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 first step in l learning how to kindly and tenderly and humanely relate to someone else as they're expressing doubt is to attend to where I am, to be in touch with my own interiority. Because the reason I, I interpret someone who's expressing doubt as though they are on fire and need to be put out, it's more of an expression of what's going on inside me. So the real question needs to be not how do I fix this person, but why do I see them as on fire? Why do I see them right now as burning to the ground when they've expressed it out? Like that has triggered something in me. It's raised my anxiety or raised my ire or raised my anger or raised whatever. And, and it's a deeper and more important question for me to say, why is that? Why am I so activated when they don't believe something or say something in the same way that I would believe it and say it? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's often the trigger is often that they've transgressed some shared boundary or uh, assumed shared boundary. And you're like, oh, wait, <laughs> we don't say that here. And you're like, well, that's, we do now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of us does. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's right. And I think, um, I think tending to that is that's, you know, this has been a, th a theme, I think, of our, a lot of our conversations, which that's a difficult, that's difficult work to do. Yeah. Um, even just to acknowledge, oh, this is, this is me. I've got to now pay attention to myself. You know, one thing, one of the, uh, one of the books that was um, very, very helpful to me in, in the early days of, uh, you know, after trauma was um, a book called In the Shelter by um, Padraig Otuma. Mm -hmm. He's an Irish poet. Um, works in in reconciliation and trauma and he tells his own story but it, the title of the book comes from an irish saying proverb that says it's it's in the shelter of each other that we live mm. mm -hmm. um but as he's telling his own story he relates it, um, back to a poem and kind of the whole first first few first part of the book is about him coming to the place where he could just say um hello to here right not hello to where to where i i think i should be mm -hmm. 
and I, I think that the, there's a lot of um, gravitational pull in the church to in the church community to sort of uh, wistfully, <laughs> nostalgically, um, white-knuckled, whatever it is, um, be so obsessed to where we should be that we never are able to acknowledge here. What's so beautiful about Padraig's story is it's in coming to say hello to here that, that he begins to heal, which is, I think that's just axiomatic, right? Right. Right. Um, it'd be like your it'd be like your doctor coming in and saying, "Well, you know, we just want you to be, um, we just want you to be healthy and have, a, you know, have low blood pressure and low cholesterol." And you're like, "Well, but do I? You know, I don't." And how do I get there? Don't tell me what. Don't tell me what the ideal is. I need you to. I need you to assess, assess where I am. Right. 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 Um, because the only way the doctor can actually bring healing is this come in and say, your blood pressure is high. Yep. Um, and the only way you're really going to actually then move to healing in that process is acknowledge that's where I am. Right. And I, I think so much energy is, um, and I, you said this, um, you said this, uh, that so much, I forget your exact quote, but so much of energy in the life of the church is spent towards perfection right the ideal of where i should be mm -hmm. um and what that leads to is always hiding right um and so um in those spaces one just learning that that the healthy the healthiest possible place for a human to be is here because the only way they can grow grow into what you know even if it's just maturity is to acknowledge that I'm here and so I think in those those spaces we sort of expect people to play the the game of of hiding of idealization of their of where they really are right um and again, that, I think that, that the the step to dealing with that is to acknowledge that that's because I have a hard time being here. Yeah, right? I'm, that, I'm that scared exposes, of being. Right, if I'm trying to put the person out, what that may be like they're on fire. What that may be exposing is I'm not willing to be honest about where I am. Right, um, and so I can't. <laughs> I certainly then can't allow somebody else to 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 play by different rules. And, and I think that's just, I, so I think the short of that is, is just good listening and empathy and kindness. Making of space, a kind of a recognition of the reasonableness of the doubt, whatever it is. One of the things that Patrick talks about is that his particular struggle was, um, is uh, he, he, he wanted to be a priest He's gay, and one of the things that happened to him in that in that story was that um, he's very kind and says these are well-meaning Christians, but they, you know, they tried to cast the gay demon out of him. Right, that was their answer. Learning to allowing the person who's in that space to to be where they are and to not see it as your responsibility to fix them, 
I think that's part of holding space, right? Is yeah, holding space yeah. is to is to disabuse myself of of the perception that my my role here is to fix anything, and that that goes a long way to um, creating a kind of uh, space for people to to be honest, um, to be where they are. Um, yeah, one of the things I got to where I would say in my own struggle with a, a perfectionistic kind of faith was when people would say things to me, I would say, maybe that is where I'm supposed to be, but I'm not. I'm I'm not. So what am I supposed to do now? Right. You know, <laughs> okay, I get it. Maybe that's what I should do, but that's not, or maybe that's what I should think, but that's not what I think. So what, what you know, the, don't tell me what I should do because that, that doesn't, that isn't, that isn't, that's not like we play the game of hopscotch and we're like, Oh, you should be on this square. So you just hop to that square. It doesn't work that way. And so learning that the, the human, that the, the, the pathway to, to sort of to spiritual life and maturity is it's mysterious and it's often convoluted and circuitous and, and it's not controllable by the person on the journey and by the people walking with the person on the journey. Don't Hold Me To This podcast is a production of Don't Hold Me To This. Music this week is by Marshall Essinger and CJ Harris. Like the podcast, subscribe, and follow on whatever platform you are on. You can find out more, do some more reading, get in touch, and subscribe to our writings at don'tholdmetothis.substack.com.